not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So while it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important and just as American to have some fun. Now, let's have some fun. Welcome back to another episode of Leaning Middle. I'm Eric. And I'm Brian. And today we're going to be discussing the intricacies of voting in the United States and potential pitfalls and benefits of the Electoral College, as well as some examples of voter suppression. Voter suppression, it, it makes it sound like it's the 1950s and you got guys out there with baseball bats and, and uh, kind of forcing people not to not to vote is and, and that's what I immediately went to when we talked about which yeah which one we were going to do today um, but that's not really the case of voter suppression anymore is it no no I mean that's the interesting thing is I think what you explained voter intimidation that is you know a small subsect of voter suppression and I think a lot of people want to make a case that the president calling for um, partisan poll watchers specifically is kind of, could be considered voter intimidation, but it really does look different now. You know, something as simple as um, a lot of states are trying to limit the ability to drop off mail-in ballots at different locations. So it's the ultimate debate between is it voter suppression or is it actually voter security? So let's talk about that one because that one I know – when the the notification went off on my phone that you know we're in the state of texas and when the notification went off that greg abbott was going to um do one drop off per county yeah like the thing that went through my mind immediately was like you got to be kidding me i mean how do in houston or uh even these rural areas uh where you have to drive a, a county is very very large and sparse and and there's not a whole lot in there and you got sometimes you have to drive an hour yeah. to to be able to do that what was the mindset behind that like what did he actually think was going to happen or or in any of these states what do they think is really going to the possibilities are and i think that's what it comes down to is a lot of people will always say that they're we're most worried about, um, you know, keeping votes secure, that more locations means more potential for fraud or misinterpretation, I guess. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure because I don't really see how that works necessarily. But um, in my mind, you know, the attempt to condense down, you know, pickup locations, especially in a city like Houston, which is what, the third biggest city in the country right now, I think? Something like Maybe that, Maybe fourth yeah. after third Chicago. Fourth, yeah. yeah. And um, – so it's just, it's kind of shocking, you know, and it's like, I can understand the cons security concerns to some degree, but to limit like one location for potentially, you know, millions of individuals, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Well, like, let, let's take out the, the obvious one that not everybody can, has transportation to get there, mm -hmm. or um, now you're having to coordinate bus trips to get there, or you have to coordinate your day to be able to get there. But I know the first thing I do when when I'm getting ready to vote is I go onto my phone and I go nearest voting station to me or the voting station nearest me. And I think you just hit the point on the head, too, where a lot of confusion's coming from because he didn't shut down 
voting locations. He just shut down all of the different mail-in ballot drop-offs places, which aren't even that easy to Google and figure out exactly where you can drop in, you know, drop off a mail-in ballot because so many people are uncertain with the postal system you know it seems like that's almost a distant memory now in the middle of october when there was the post crisis but it's what a lot of people are just scared that their vote won't be counted unless they can turn it over to somebody in person did you ever think snail mail was going to come back like that it was going to be so important i think they're just as surprised to end up being like the last uh, safeguard in democracy as everybody else's it is it's funny how that does come full circle and it shows that um, you know, we necessarily haven't been investing in digital voting infrastructure. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure. Obviously, a lot of security concerns and things like that with foreign agents. But the other side of that looks like is we really haven't been investing in our postal, you know, service at all. So when it comes down to something like voting where, you know, pot- potentially 300 million Americans are going to participate in it, if everybody did turn out, then it's you kind of have to stop and think like why aren't we funding you know these either an effort to make this much more easy to do online and safe or you know bulk up mail-in voting to the point where it is secure and safe and everybody feels like their vote will count well you know i've talked about this one in the past too because I, i specifically brought up to you why can't we do online voting yeah and you and i kind of went down the the path of well, number one, you have security issues. We were already concerned that uh, foreign countries are involved in our our uh, electoral process. Yeah. But what what else is there that's really holding that back? Because I, I look at it and I go, why? I mean, we do everything with our phones. I can send you money mm-hmm. on the other side. I don't need to go to Western Union anymore. I don't have to write out a check and send it to you. I can venmo it to you very very absolutely why is it that the banks feel secure enough to let us transfer our funds and and uh different identity aspects and we can lock websites down and Mm -hmm. and have security measures and everything else but yet we can't vote it doesn't seem to make sense and if you really do think about it from a technology standpoint especially with modern inventions like blockchain there's really no way we wouldn't be able to set up some kind of large-scale online voting. You know, the two major barriers to that are, A, you know, banks and Venmo, they aren't too concerned about, you know, major state-funded hacking efforts. And they're doing things every single day. Whereas the election, you know, comes along, presidential election at least, every four years, where it's like, if you have entire countries, you know, whether it's China or Russia or North Korea or what have you, working for four years straight to compromise you know, one piece of software versus trying to break into banks to steal smaller payments and stuff, it um, it becomes really dubious. And that's the other thing. When banks get hacked, you know, they can fix it. They can figure it out. If the election gets hacked... Where do you go from there? Exactly. Okay. So what kind of um, voter suppression tactics have you seen this year? Because I've got an opinion on a couple of them, but I'm interested to see what your opinions are. I think it's just very interesting when you look at you know, voting should be the the easiest thing to do in a democracy. Like, it really, you should have as little barriers to it as possible. And I completely understand, you know, the desire to have secure elections. But if you really do just look at the hard facts, there's a, probably, I think there's been 30 cases of actual fraudulent voting in, since it was recorded history, basically, in the country. 
So that's very low. You know, you're hearing stories coming up constantly of like X amount of mail-in ballots found in a creek or something. And it's like, yes, that's taking place. And it's like the issue is, is kind of these mail destruction stories are happening all the time. There's a reason why the term is going postal. You know, sometimes postal workers crack, and honestly, it's it's surprising if you look up, like, dumping just bulk quantities of mail, like, on routes or in dumpsters, and it just so happens that during the election, these kind of stories are getting picked up because they're finding ballots and stuff. So it really, there really isn't a large-scale voting fraud effort. So when we're starting to see why is it so difficult to vote, why are they actually putting more securities on top of it to vote rather than making it more equitable? And I think that's the question most people need to ask themselves when they consider what voter suppression looks like. Yeah, and I mean, the whole postal situation, it's not just contained to the electoral process either. Exactly. We're in marketing, and I remember a couple years ago we did a direct mail campaign, and several months after we did that, the post office came back to us and said, well, actually, we gave this, or we put it out there, but they just didn't stuff them or they didn't put them in the mailboxes. And we got stacks and stacks of, of mm-hmm. our direct mail pieces back that were just never delivered. Exactly. It, they, it was delivered to the post office. It just never made it out. Yeah. So I could definitely see where some, some concern comes from there. But what is the you, – you brought up a point a, a second ago. What's the difference between voter suppression and voter intimidation? Is it not mm-hmm. the same concept? So voter intimidation is actively – working to stop somebody from casting their vote in the form of threatening some sort of retaliation. So people um, view something like armed police officers at polling locations or um, poll watchers, you know, which are just partisan individuals who feel the need to be present at a polling location because they believe some sort of fraud, even though they do not have the authority to actually be there. Um, it, it, that varies from state to state, of course. You know, different states have different laws in terms of poll watching, but intimidation is actively threatening, whereas suppression is more insidious. It's stuff like, um, you know, what, what we see, um, and just to kind of use a local example, is um, I was putting together all of the polling locations in Lubbock based off of the parts of town east, north, south, west, and central Lubbock. And uh, south Lubbock, arguably probably the least populated part of Lubbock, but also the wealthiest, had over 15 polling locations on election day. East Lubbock, which is statistically the poorest, but also one of the highly dense, most populated areas, has three polling locations for the entire part of the city. So if you look at that, it's funny because statistically you can back that up they're going to close polling locations where voter turnout is small and on the east side of lubbock that's where the least the smallest amount of voter turnout was but if you stop and consider it you're kind of in a chick you know a chicken and an egg situation which is are you closing locations and that's why you're having less turnout or is it vice versa so voter suppression can look as something as easily you know as easy as well you know people aren't voting in these neighborhoods so we're just going to take away you know the accessible ability for them to do so what does what does it look like when you have that result is, is it because it's kind of like you said the the egg and the chicken situation but if i'm if i'm in the the southwest part of town of of lubbock and i go to vote and it's open and it's there 
then I can place my vote. Yeah. If you're in the east side of Lubbock and you go to vote and you have a hard time finding a poll, well, that, that frustration will shut you down. But then at what point do you go, well, wait a second, they have more voting stations than we have and you're suppressing my vote. At what point does that really become more of a, um, a, a demographically racist charged situation? Uh, I think that's what we're, you know, kind of seeing, especially right now, when, like, there are really high tensions around any sort of disparity, whether that's economic or racial in terms of cities all across the country. And I think what we're seeing is a huge turnout of people who are voting for the first time who feel the desire to have their voice heard based off of just the current state of the nation. And the bulk of new registered voters are minority populations, whether that's Latinx, black, or um, indigenous individuals, also Asian. And it's, it's interesting to see that, that these people are now being like, I want to be actively involved. And then they're saying like, well, wait, like I have access to less resources based off of where I live than, you know, wealthier areas of town. So it is, it's hard if you really want to make voting equitable it means investing money into part of towns, which, you know, local city governments tend to forget about. So is this an example of um, systemic racism? I think to some degree, you know, that argument can be made if you if you jump into the critical race theory paradigm. It, it absolutely is, you know, because these communities are often redlined. They're often, I mean, while segregation is illegal, you know, we see very clear examples of it in cities all over the world. There's a reason, you know, why for some reason, statistically, the east side of cities is always technically like an impoverished part. And people ask, like, why, why is that? You know, it's like East St. Louis is dangerous. Like East Lubbock is, you know, demographically going to be less um, wealthy than North, South and uh, Central Lubbock. So it's like, why, why does that keep happening? And like you said, there is some level of systemic racism happening just because these policies and a lot of the local policies were written before the, you know, uh, civil rights era. So it's right. like, of course, things are just going to be written into law. But if you take it from the other perspective, it is tricky to really have a conversation about because um, it does like data does back up the reasons to close you know some of these locations and that's where you can have like a good conversation around it is yes i mean you can look at it from one perspective and see that there is some sort of racist um underlying reason for all this taking place but then if you look at it from the other side yeah statistically i mean if you have a limited budget and you need to open up polling places you're going to go where the voter turnout is highest not necessarily population density so that's kind of how it can be protected so what is the most unique voter suppression analytic or or example that that really kind of intrigues you a little bit i think what just surprises me is um you know, really looking at the Electoral College, where I I think the Electoral College was a brilliant thing in the beginning of kind of the country, but... But I, I really don't see... I, I, I'm curious to see where you're going with this. Yeah, and there is a way it ties into it. it. The Electoral College really has never entered my mind as a form of suppression. Yeah, and you would think it's more about equitable, uh, you know, making sure that everybody's equal. 
But we have to ask the question is, do we care about everybody being equal or just about every state being equal? Right. And I wasn't interrupting you just to, mm-hmm. to interrupt you. I was <laughs> interrupting you because I was like, are, are you going to be able to tie this back around yeah. on the electoral <laughs> college aspect? So, no, absolutely. But what do you mean by everybody being equal? Because aren't the electoral college set up based off of population? Yes, to some degree. But then you forget the other side, which is every single state has two senators, too. So obviously the electoral votes a state gets is the is the total amount that everybody gets two for their senators. And then there's it's calculated based off of the amount of House of Representative seats you have for your state. And um, but if you look at it, you know, a state like Wyoming, I think, casts four electoral ballots. And, you know, I'm sure somebody will fact check me on that. Whereas California can do that. <laughs> while California is 55 um, electoral votes. So then if you just do a statistic breakdown of population over electoral votes, you'll find that a Wyoming vote, basically in terms of actually contributing to an electoral ballot being cast, is three times what a single vote in California is. Okay, so here's a, here's a quick, let's see where your okay. knowledge is. How many did you say California got? 55. Okay, that's right. How okay. many for Texas? I didn't say it today. I said Wyoming. Oh, okay. Wyoming? How Texas many? is 38, I think. Yep, you're right. Okay. Wyoming? Four? Three. Three. So Even close. worse. So close. Uh, Florida? 29. Pennsylvania? 28. Yep. No. Pennsylvania is only 20. Really? Okay. Yeah. Good. Yep. Um, <laughs> Arizona? Six? 11. Okay. Uh, New York. 35. 29. 29? Yeah. Man, this is yeah. bad. I started off on a hot streak, too. You did. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed and a little uh, disappointed all at the same time. Yeah, right. <laughs> Washington. They would have to be around probably 9. 12. 12, yeah. Yeah, and uh, let's see. Um, Illinois. This one surprised me. It would ha- well, with Chicago, you would imagine it would be like 18, 19? Uh, 20. Okay. 20. And then Ohio? Uh, they're smaller, so 12, uh, 9 to 12. 16. Interesting. I and guess I forget there's Cleveland and Cincinnati. And yeah, there's a decent amount of yeah. different cities and there. North Carolina? 11? Uh, 15. Okay. And you're at 270. There you go. So... You, it's it's interesting when you look at a map yep. like that and you can go, all I got to do is win these states. Exactly. And that's, I mean, we can jump into that so, section as but well. But I didn't mean to, yeah. <laughs> to sidetrack you. It just, that fact really kind of popped out to me when I was looking at the map and then I'm, I'm sitting here thinking where the candidates are going today. Yeah. But it, you're right. It, it does lend itself a little bit to some suppression because... I, I don't see any um, candidates going to a lot of these states where the electoral vote is so low. Yep. And that's a form of suppression. To right? a de- well, it's almost the flip side now because now we're seeing states with low electoral votes are actually carrying more weight than a common vote in a highly densely populated state. Like I was saying, you know, one vote in Wyoming, statistically, if you just take the amount of votes, electorals, people get and divide that by the population one vote in wyoming technically counts three times as much than one vote in california 
because. Okay, so just make sure I got this right. So if I vote, being in Texas, yes, I vote. My vote counts once. Let's just say once. Uh huh. And if I'm in Wyoming, and I vote, my vote counts by three. In terms of like, in you, when you think about the um, representative democracy, so yes, your vote will actually co- in Wyoming would cost would be three times more in terms of what that would do for your electoral um, representative. Kind of makes me want to move to Wyoming so my vote just counts a little bit more. But if you stop and pause <laughs> and you consider, okay, how many of those, you know, let's say states with over 20 votes, um, majority of them are either swing or Democratic. You know, Pennsylvania, Florida, swing. Um, California, Democratic. Illinois, Democratic. Texas is slowly becoming a swing state. Um, you know, the Rust Belt across the board is becoming swing and they're kind of just always up in the air. But if you look at states with under five electoral votes, you're probably or really under 10. You're going to see the Midwest and you're going to see that the majority of states with under 10 electoral votes are pretty solidly red states. Right. So that's when you start to consider, OK, this makes more sense why somebody would be in favor of holding the Electoral College if they have conservative beliefs, because without it, it would make it impossible for the conservatives to ever win another election at a national scale for the presidency specifically. Obviously, state-to-state elections are going to differ greatly. But that is the main reason people have so much dying respect for the Electoral College. But when you really do stop and think about it, it is kind of broken. You know, we everybody should have a voice in what they believe the country should be run regardless of where they live. You know, I don't understand why somebody in Nebraska should have more of a voice than somebody in California just because they chose to live in a less populated area. And obviously issues are going to be different, you know, from your coastal cities, which are going to obviously be more democratic versus um, your kind of middle America things, which are going to be more conservative. So there is a toss up there. But at the end of the day, it's just you can't deny the fact that our votes are not equal, you know, and the Electoral College, in a way, is actually skewing that now because the country's grown so much. And then we can even have another conversation that bleeds into this is, why haven't we let our citizens in Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, who are American citizens, they, their votes don't mean anything in the presidential election? Means zero. Zero. They actually have zero representation. So... Why is that? And it's because we refuse to adopt them into statehood, which would give them rights and the ability to, you know, have electoral votes that go towards the presidency. So it doesn't make sense, really, until you consider, well, you know, if they were to give D.C. and Puerto Rico some level of electoral votes, then they would almost always swing Democratic. They would not. It would be very, very odd if a major metropolitan area in the Northeast, as well as an island that has had tumultuous relationships with Republican presidents, end up voting in favor of them. So that's... Isn't that kind of counterintuitive to our beliefs, which is we're all equal and uh, this is about freedom and it, it shouldn't be about left or right? That's my opinion, is it should be about freedom. It should be about equal representation. It should be making it as easy for everybody that we're going to call citizens to go out and vote. And it's not. It, it, it is statistically much easier for a very specific subset of the population to be able to vote than others. 
and it's people who have the resources of transportation. It's people who have the resources of the ability to take off work for a day. You know, the Republicans have time and time shot down the bill to make Election Day a national holiday because they know there's only one reason you could you would not make that a national holiday. And they can say it's because of worker increase and they don't want to burden companies. But based off of what we're seeing in a pandemic, I think we know that that's a lie. So it really only comes down to making sure blue collar, hardworking people who can't get off to go vote at a certain day and time can do so. So there's a lot of different tactics out there that just seems like, wow, you know, the more well-off somebody is, the easier time they're going to have to vote, which is insane because you would imagine the people who have the least are going to be most worried about who's representing them. Right. What, what's another form of voter suppression that's out there? I think what was really interesting is we can talk about 2016 with, um, you know, we all heard about the hack and Russia meddling and yada yada, and I don't think a lot of people are aware that a lot of the campaigns that Russia was putting out and um, as well as some, you know, PACs and even candidates were running dark money ads um, to actually stop, like, try to encourage people not to vote. Specifically, uh, minority communities is where we saw the biggest kind of anti-voting rhetoric. And these ads were insidious because it wasn't saying, like, don't vote. <laughs> like, that would be right. ridiculous. It would be two on the nose. But... They were really good at creating political apathy. That's where you see, you know, so many people saying like, well, both candidates suck. You know, it's like, I don't want to vote for anybody. And that's when you say, well, democracy is not like falling in love. You know, you're not picking the person you're going to stay with the rest of your life. Sure. And my wife and I were talking last night about a a similar topic. Uh And it really came down to in 2016, who is the lesser of the two evils? Yeah. And we both kind of bought into... Uh, our version of what we thought was the yeah. lesser of the two evils, and and of course now you're you're going whoa, wait a second. Yeah. But um, and I do need to plug this this movie or, or this documentary uh-huh. because it is just it, really really good, especially if you know anything about the the marketing side of all of this. Um, but the great hack yeah. on on Netflix, great show, really explains what Cambridge Analytica mm-hmm. situation was and and how involved the candidates were or their their campaigns were yeah absolutely Um, but it also really shows what you were just talking about and how it can turn the political tide uh one of the examples i I don't want to spoil the the movie but one of the examples was they went into a country that was really divided between two races as their parties and they knew from their their analytics and their data points which they had a ridiculous amount of data points on us. It was like yeah, 30 yeah. million accounts with 5,000 data points per person. Uh, it, it was insane. But what they did was they knew that if they could get this one demographic to turn, uh-huh. then it would sway the, the election in the way that they wanted it to do. So they actually started a social media or a social movement mm-hmm. that was do not vote. Yeah. Rebel against the government and do not vote. Yeah. Well, they knew that if they went after this demographic, one of the races of that demographic Mm -hmm. would not vote. And the other would because their parents told them to. Absolutely. And it ended up winning in their favor. Yep. Um, But I think that's um, that's a a very good example of the um, 
suppression side of it because exactly. you don't even know you're being suppressed. And if you really think about it, a lot of people don't really know how close the 2016 election was. Where, you know, you can look at the electoral votes total and Trump seems to have steadily won it. But that came down to 2002, uh, I'm sorry, 220,000 votes. If they were different, Hillary would have won. It's, it's I heard it even came down to like 70,000. So depending on probably if you actually look at, you know, the specific states, like I think I just totaled them all up. So, yeah, probably since she wouldn't need to win all of them. Right. Um, and it, it is shocking. You know, that's not a large number to change their mind. You know, that's it's not really a large not. number to persuade. It's like we've run campaigns for, you know, like. Not local. when you're talking about how many people are in the United States. No, we've run plumbing campaigns that have gotten 70,000 impressions, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. we're in Lubbock. So it's like <laughs> it, it's not it's not hard when you then find, OK, what are our battleground states? Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina. Let's just pump those full of well, in, in the show. They even go into the further going. Uh, of these people in these battleground yep. states, these people are impressionable. And that's where you can use social media to your advantage, where we can target, you know, right down to zip codes and then interests and then target both of those into age and then gender. So it's like if we know that a specific demographic is going to be turning out for one side or the other, we can go in and target zip codes, target interests to specify the demographics, then change their age and the gender and have a perfectly specified campaign for exactly what's going to be impressionable to that audience sent out in minutes. So would you say social media is a form of suppression? Social media um, and the internet as a whole, you know, is it's it's the ultimate chaotic neutral if you're looking at Dungeons and Dragons alignment because it can be used for so much good and it can be used for so much evil, you know. I know um, working in politics to the degree I do is we're doing a huge push for equitable voter access on social media and we're actually running ads about how do you vote, what do you need to you know, bring in order to vote, XYZ, all of those different things. And it's interesting that then you know, we're doing that and then on the flip side, obviously people are working almost tirelessly to have the exact opposite effect. So quick, just a little question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you by chance know how many different ads the Trump campaign ran in 2016? I do not. 3.5 million different ads. That's unbelievable. That is crazy. And I, I would bring up Clinton's how much she ran, but I don't have that information. Yeah. I just happened to have that one because I read an article hmm. where, where they were talking about that. Yeah. So, um, but that, that goes to show you, I mean, uh, we know from marketing that you have different ads for different ad sets and different uh-huh. groups and everything else. But 3.5 million is that's a lot of ads to run in a in a condensed period of time. Absolutely. I mean, that so. is an unbelievable amount of work to set up and manage. So what is your we wrapping it up? What is your biggest concern about voter suppression in the 2020 election? I think um it's the first time we're hearing, you know, the president of the United States clearly use um, language that is indicative of voter suppression, which is specifically trying to create doubt in the voting process, working every single day to create doubt, telling people 
Well, and you can see it. I mean, he's telling some people mail-in voting's broken and not to do it while he's turning around and then telling, sending out mailers in conservative states saying, like, well, absentee ballots aren't mail-in. And they are. It's the exact same thing. People can argue the semantics around it all. Well, the but difference is you request one versus one being sent to you. Exactly. And but, at the end of the day, they're the exact same envelope. <laughs> well, and I was at my father-in-law's last weekend, and he was all excited because— they do mail-in voting, and, yeah. and he was ready to get his his ballot so uh-huh. that he could place his, his vote, and he wanted to get it back in as, as quickly as possible Absolutely, um, because he's a, a diligent citizen and, and yeah. does what yeah. he's supposed to do. Um, but I, the comment he made was he just – there's never been a problem with it that, that exactly. he, he knows about. I'm, I'm sure there's – representation of, of issues somewhere, but there's always problems somewhere. Um, but I think that's one of the things that, that really kind of highlighted for me was um, the people who actually do mail-in votes, yeah. they're, they're not understanding where the, the issues are. And, and it, it's somewhat offensive yeah. for people who've been doing this for a while because you're kind of going, well, wait a second. Yeah. Well, we've been doing it this way for, for a long time. And we haven't had any problems, and now you're calling me out? That's the thing. There is no issue with mail-in voting. There has never been, there isn't probably going to be any issues this election. Well, but what about the fake ballot boxes that are popping up in California and across the country? Which is weird, because they popped up in California, and today the, you know, can like, Republican Party of California admitted that they're doing that and then refused to stop doing that. So, I mean, it's like you get to a certain point with voting suppression and you're like, okay, so they admitted it and still nobody's upset. You know, it's well, nobody within that party is upset. Like personally, if Democrats are putting up fake voting boxes as a registered Democrat, even just around my city, I'd be pissed be absolutely pissed you know i would not want that to happen in any terms of a free democracy let alone you know um people admitting to it and then not facing consequences yeah it's it's interesting to see how all that works but Mm -hmm. all right final remarks i think right now it's just important that everybody does get out and vote you know whether you're voting for the left or the right in this election it's it's more important than ever to make sure your voice is heard and there's a multitude of ways to do that safely you know most states have early voting periods that it's very simple process i voted today it took about five minutes um and then you know if you feel don't feel comfortable going to the polls is look for the alternative solutions there's a, still a lot of drop-off locations for mallet mail-in ballots if you're uncomfortable about sending those back but there's also more than enough time to request a ballot and send it back so make sure if you just go to google actually and type in voting information google will see your location and provide you with steps to walk through both polling Um, locations as well as doing mail-in ballots so that's what I would just say in closing is don't don't let the rhetoric get the best of you you know make sure your voice is heard this election yeah no I I agree completely so uh, well um, everybody it's uh, like we always say it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right we all have to start leaning in towards the middle and we're looking forward to taking a look at all that common ground next episode with (laughs) y'all